Welcome to the 439th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with writer Fiona King Foster, author of the debut novel, The Captive. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Fiona King Foster, author of the debut novel, The Captive. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Sure. If someone hasn't heard about your debut novel, The Captive, yet, how would you describe the novel? Oh, wonderful. It's The thing I always say first is that it's fun. I had a fun time writing it. I think it's a pretty fun read. It's a thriller. It's a rural noir. It's a bit of a contemporary Western. It's an adventure story, and it takes place in a contemporary near future environment in this kind of speculative world where the nation has split along rural urban lines. So our story takes place in a rural area following characters who are part of this politically secessionist state. That's the background. It's pretty far in the background, but it's a relevant piece of what the book is like and what it's about. But in the foreground is this adventure story where our hero, Brooke, is a mom and a a cranberry farmer, and she has to transport this dangerous fugitive to the nearest marshal. So that's it. That's the adventure. And of course, things get complicated along the way. It's uh, fast-paced, It's shockingly violent (laughs) to me, but it's fun. It's a fun time, and I think it ends in a warm place. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Captive? I do. I remember it clear as day. It was was one of those kind of bolts out of the blue. I, I think I must have read a news item or something that I have lost track of since about a citizen's arrest type of situation. And for whatever reason, that caught in my imagination. And so the first scene I set down, which was pretty much as it stands in the novel now, is this initial fight scene between our hero and this fugitive that she takes captive. And it was really the mechanics of taking someone captive that fascinated me, the the difficulty of it, the kind of the logistical difficulty of it. And also honestly, like the social awkwardness of it, like how if you're not a law enforcement officer, if this isn't your day to day existence, you're not going into your day expecting to take someone's liberty away from them and and get into this violent scenario. How strange is that going to be between the captor and the captive? And so that was what caught my interest. And I found it entertaining for whatever reason. And I I carried on from there. I know in both the US and Canada currently, there does seem to be a harsh conflict going on between rural and urban communities and ideas and thoughts. Did you have that in mind when you were writing The Captive? I had it in mind because that's something that's been on my mind for a long time, if not my whole life. But when I started writing the story, it wasn't my intent to go there. It started out as a, a historical Western, really. It was like a shoot up on a train and the whole works. It was much more in the past. And then in subsequent drafts, I think that, that those sentiments that you're referring to that are more and more alarming, it can seem, in both Canada and the U.S. Um, and I'm a citizen of both countries. And I have family in both countries. And so I follow the news <laughs> in both countries. And it's certainly not unique to either Canada or the U.S. or to North America. This is something that's a theme uh, in the Western world right now, so it crept in, and and I find myself I found myself redrafting the book at, in a contemporary setting where this kind of 
division has reached an ultimate expression as an actual kind of civil rupture. The story, my story takes place like 30 years after that's happened. So it's it's not a story about the secession of the rural world from an urban government. It's the story of what that looks like a little ways down the road. And uh, that, yeah, that was where I wanted to put my attention. What would people's lives really be like? And and what are we, why are we so fascinated with this this polarization between urban and rural and where is it going to get us? Do you remember the first fiction that you ever wrote? Oh, sure. Gosh, I was a kid. So it's somewhat, I'm basing this on what my parents have told me. Apparently my first story, I was in kindergarten or something, and it was very short. It was one day a tomato crossed the road, squished tomato, that's the end. So it was very grim. There's always been a kind of a grim note. I think I go to those dark places. And I do remember as an older child, the first story I remember actually setting down was more or less a ripoff of the movie Legend. I don't know if you remember that movie. It was a unicorn movie when I was a kid. And that was how I learned and how I started was retelling my own versions of stories that I liked. And I did that for a long time. My teens and my 20s, I was still emulating, learning by learning by copying, really, until I found my own way. And so what was that journey to writing and getting your debut novel published? It's been a long journey for me. I, I'm in my 40s now. I'm a mom. I've had several careers, even though, as I said, I've been writing my whole life and writing in a pretty serious way my whole life. And I started my the first novel that I undertook in a serious way in my in the middle of high school, and I've been at it ever since. And I was very shy about it, actually. I didn't want to show my writing to anyone for a long time. And maybe it was because I still felt that I was in that apprenticeship phase of developing as a writer. And I wasn't as confident of my own voice or that what I had to say was new or really my own. I did do, I did a master's in creative writing in my 20s. And, and so I dipped my toe into that literary world. But even even at that point, it, I what, didn't not, I didn't feel like I was ready. I didn't send a book out. I didn't send a manuscript out or anything like that until a couple of years ago. And it was this particular book that took hold of me that was the first time I felt like, no, I want this in the world. And it was actually, did you read American War by Omar Al-Akkad by any chance? It was no, a, I did not. It's a book about a contemporary American Civil War, and our books don't have a lot in common. But when his book came out, there was a lot of attention around the things currently in play that could lead to a scenario like that, and that really encouraged me to think that the kind of world I was writing about in my book was something people were interested in. So that was the impetus. I actually I, I read his book, I put it down, and I wrote my first query letter to an agent, and then after that, it happened really quickly. Yeah, I was very lucky. I, I'm the first agent I queried took me on, and she's fantastic. And she connected me with wonderful publishers. Wow. And it's been a pretty much a, a fairy tale, I have to tell you. I waited a long time, but it worked out really well. <laughs> so what was your MFA experience like? Mm, that's a good question. I'm struggling to be diplomatic about it. <laughs> it was... There were good things about it. I met wonderful people. I really did. Some of my best friends and some wonderful writers that I'm still connected with uh, and share work with date from that time. And I had good professors. There were many good things to be said about it. And at the same time, 
I'm not sure that creatively it really was what I had hoped it would be for me. I think if I was to if I was to design an MFA program in in my perfect world, there would have been a, a bit more nuts and bolts, a bit more how to do the job. And I think other MFA programs perhaps are more like that. The one that I went to really was quite literary in focus. We, as a result, I read a lot of wonderful stuff and I had some fascinating conversations, but more than anything, it caused me to doubt my own work and to feel that it wasn't perhaps sophisticated enough or, or cutting edge enough. And nothing against avant-garde writers. I read a lot of cutting edge work and work that pushes the kind of formal boundaries more. And I love it. And I appreciate it. It's not necessarily what I do. So that's a very roundabout answer. It was good and bad. Sure. So what was your writing process like when you were working on The Captive? Did you outline the novel extensively? Or was it more of an organic process of seeing where the story led? I was totally at the latter. I I had no idea what it was going to be. I had that one scene that I mentioned that I sat down and I I really just it, it felt like I, I felt like a point of view camera following my characters around after that for a long time just seeing what they would do and and the book changed drastically from draft to draft. Sometimes I would try and get them to do things that they didn't really want to do and I'd have to backtrack and listen a bit better uh, and try again. So it was totally messy and organic. And probably that's why I kept at it because it was a surprising and uh, entertaining journey for me in the doing. I did not know where it was going to end up. I didn't, I wasn't even convinced it was going to end up as a book, but I had fun finding out. Yeah. In terms of process, I- Are uh, you working on another novel? Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just- Go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. Yeah. In terms of process, I, I had a a toddler and a newborn in the house and a full-time job and my partner worked nights. So the actual writing of it was five minutes at a time <laughs> when I could grab them, which is, I, I don't think I had the presence of mind to do any really outlining or planning at that, at that juncture. So it was probably the book happened the way it had to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough process. Mm-hmm. Are you working on another novel now? I am. I am. Gosh, it's exciting to be back in the early stages of something again and very overwhelming at the same time. The Finishing the captive, when you get to the final stages of a book, of course, it's very fiddly and fussy and it's still hard work and feels high stakes and all that stuff. But it's at this part, at this point, I've been writing for decades. It's work that's a lot, I feel a lot more confident doing as an editor than in this early part where I'm finding a new story and it's growing and expanding. And it's really fun. But yeah, it's humbling. Once again, not convinced that it will become a book, but I hope it does. Do you ever sit down to a blank page and have problems getting started writing? And if so, what do you do on those days? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, 
Did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Oh, sure I do. Um, Sure I do. And sometimes I don't overcome that. But one useful thing I can, I think I can share is a trick I developed writing the captive that I'm using again now. And I find it really helpful, especially for someone, as I mentioned, I've got kids in the house and a million things going on. So someone who, whose time is maybe a bit more broken up, I don't have the the luxury of giving myself a six hour workday in which to find an hour of writing. It's got it when I sit down at the desk is that's when I have to work because that's the time I've got. But all to say, uh, I use musical prompts. So for the last book, I, I just built myself a playlist of a few, like a, a dozen or two dozen songs that I just turned on when I sat down to write. And over time, I just came to associate that playlist with that project. And it was almost a kind of a way to drop into that place a little faster, building that that mental pathway to remind me of you know, what it felt like to inhabit that story. And, and I, so this time around, I started a new book and I didn't feel like I could use the same playlist because it's so at this point deeply associated with that story. I thought I made myself a new one and it really helps. And I'm sure for other people, maybe music isn't the thing, but some like some trigger for yourself just to remind yourself of what it feels like to be doing the work can shorten the amount of time it get, takes to get into it. I think that's what I found. Can you let us know at least uh, a couple of the songs that were on your playlist for the captive? <laughs> yeah, sure. The first song that was on the playlist, <laughs> I, I like to write to, uh, th- this is, I think, not super common. I think most people like instrumental music. I like to write to pop music. It just keeps my energy up. The first song on the captive list was Bulletproof by LaRue, which is a dance hit from England from, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or something. And it just, yeah, for me, that was the sound of that book and the bulletproof. I know of. the song. Re- yeah, it's a great song. And it resonates. If you've read the book, it resonates with our hero who is bulletproof in some ways. <laughs> great. What about your new playlist? Can you give us a sample of one, one or two songs? Well, you know, I had, I, I loved my old playlist so much, and but I knew I needed to build a new one. <laughs> And I couldn't use the same songs. So I started it just it maybe almost as a joke to myself with LaRue's other hit, which is just, just going to remind me. It was like similar <laughs> but different. So she's getting me through two books. I owe her. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels? Yeah, I would say just have fun. if. In my experience, if I'm not having fun, I'm not going to finish it. If it, it's sometimes hard. It's not always fun. It's sometimes hard. It's sometimes painful. I have doubts, etc. But in the big picture, do what you enjoy. Tell a story that that interests you, that entertains you, and follow that impulse. 
because writing is a lot of work and writing a book is really slow. So you got to keep yourself happy so that you can do the work. Is that too vague? (laughs) So no, no, not at all. So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I... I'm just reading, unusually for me, I'm reading nonfiction, which I'm, I just devour fiction. I read novel upon novel. I can never get enough. But lately, I've been reading some nonfiction. I'm reading this book called um, The Revolutionary Genius of Plants. It's about plant intelligence. That's been surprising. But on the fiction side, I, oh, Jill Adamson's book, The Ridge Runner, that's she's a Toronto writer. I'm in Toronto. She's another Toronto writer. Uh, I don't know her personally, but she's brilliant. And her new book, The Ridge Runner, is just I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's amazing. It's actually a sequel, but it stands alone. If you haven't read the the previous book, it's a western. It's historical. It takes place in I believe early 20th century Western Canada, and it's. She writes nature beautifully. She's very careful. The prose is immaculate. The story is sprawling and exciting. So I recommend that one really highly. More in the thriller vein, last year I read Helen Phillips' The Need. That was probably the most exciting thriller I've read recently. It's psychological. It, It straddles the line between thriller and kind of existential horror, a bit surreal She's terrific. She's from New York. What else? I'm reading a, an old book from the 20s by Sylvia Townsend Warner called Lolly Willows, which I think there's a New York Review of Books edition out now. That's, it was out of print for a long time, and you can get it now again. And it's terrific. That's like totally shocking, surprising that this book isn't more famous than it is. It's marvelous. So those are the ones off the top of my head. <laughs> Great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your debut novel? My website is www.fionakingfoster.com. There's links to both publishers there, and there will be links to events as events come up. And yeah, hopefully the next book when there's something to say about that. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Fiona King Foster, author of the debut novel, The Captive. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Fiona, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Captive by Fiona King Foster, narrated by Courtney Patterson, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. The auction was interrupted in the middle of dry goods. Buckwheat flour, pea flour, an exorbitant lot of coconut flour. Hollywood kill for that, Milo said, twitching their bidding card. Don't, Brooke warned him. They still had to pay for sugar, 50 pounds of it, at least, for the fall preserves. And anyway, their daughter's passion for exotic ingredients was only her latest mutiny. You already promised her a phone battery. Milo shrugged amiably and lowered the card. The kids were alone at the farm, a few hours' ride away. They had wanted to come, of course. Holly especially, strained against their isolation, living hours outside town. But the four of them couldn't all ride. 
a hard rot blight had turned half of their last cranberry crop to dry, cotton-filled beads, forcing Brooke to sell two horses for cash. They were down to just her old mare, Star, whom Brooke and Milo had ridden together from home that morning, leaving at dawn and planning to stay overnight. Brooke couldn't remember the last time the two of them had been away from the farm together. It would have been when Milo's mother was still alive to watch the kids. But Holly was 13 now, old enough to be left in charge, and Sal, at eight, was no longer the thumb-sucking baby sister she had been. They would be fine for one night. Brooke and Milo's getaway, if a supply run to Buxton could be counted as such, had been enjoyable so far. People kept finding Milo in the auction crowd, friends, former students, people he'd known for years, gripping his arm and embracing him. Brooke knew the pleasure Milo took in his hometown, and she was happy for him, though she kept her own greetings brief. She had never stopped being a stranger here. On the platform at the front of the parking lot, the auctioneer, a lanky, freckled grandmother, palmed her megaphone, sending a rough, amplified crackle through the air. Someone was climbing the platform, Brooke saw. She took in the symbol on the man's open windbreaker. It was rare for a marshal to travel this far, 200 miles from the federal border and the city beyond. The marshal leaned in and spoke to the auctioneer. There was another crackle from the speakers. Pause for a warrant, the auctioneer announced briefly. She handed her megaphone to the marshal and folded herself into a chair, sipping bottled water. The energy in the crowd shifted, damped by a current of unease. Buxton had come through secession gentler than most. It was farming country, logging country, and the fight had been distant. Still, they held no more esteem for federal authority than anyone did this side of the border. For a minute, the marshal looked out over the crowd without speaking. Just to make them uncomfortable, Brooke thought. Even now, 30 years since the rural territory seceded, 25 since their hard-won sovereign government dissolved, the feds still acted like they had power. That smug tightness around the mouth. Not just the man's windbreaker, but his T-shirt and ball cap both bore the crest of the federal government. Do they make undies too? Someone called out to a skim of laughter. The marshal sighed and lifted a paper, reading his text into the megaphone slowly, as if to children. Addressed to residents of the unincorporated village, known historically as Buxton. A fugitive is believed to be in your area. Local households are warned this man may try to obtain a vehicle or horse. He is dangerous and possibly armed. He is wanted on numerous charges, including trafficking, assault, destruction of federal property, and the murder of a federal narcotics officer. Conversation around Brooke and Milo began to resume. The feds had no jurisdiction in the ceded territories, but they claimed the right to prosecute offenses against themselves. Everyone in the parking lot knew this marshal wasn't here out of concern for local households. Federal property had been damaged and a federal officer killed.